Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. It's the hero's adventure, right? It's the cycle of you you choose to step off the ledge and take that risk and, and go there. And it's really scary. In our world, there's a bit of a hero complex where people don't want to talk about being vulnerable and being scared when they take that initial step. But looking back on it, and I tell people this all the time, knowing what I know now, I just was oblivious to the risk. Like I didn't really appreciate (laughs) everything I was doing. So I don't know. I don't think I would, I could make that same decision today, but at the time it just seemed to make all the sense in the world to me. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools. And I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, I've got a very special guest. His name is Brian Adams. Brian is the president and founder of Excelsior Capital, where he spearheads the investor relations and capital markets arms of the firm. He has 10 years of experience in real estate private equity. And prior to forming Excelsior Capital, Brian co-founded Pream Properties in 2010 and provided leadership and direction for them in connection with capital markets, investment management, and investor relations. But Brian, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and, and how you got interested in real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. We met up in college in Connecticut. I went to law school in Boston and then moved to Nashville about 15 years ago now. And it was really twofold. Um, My wife's family has a single family office that's based here in Nashville, and they've been investing in the commercial real estate space for a long time. So when I joined the family, I got exposure to some of the GPs and the sponsors and the co-investment deals that we were working on. I just became enamored with the asset class. And then simultaneously, I was practicing law through a lot of networking, meeting with older partners at various law firms in town, realized that I didn't really want to be them when I was 50 or <laughs> yeah, 60. Um, for sure. We, we can get into it, kind of the reasoning, but yeah. um, it's just through those informational interviews, I realized this is not my cup of tea and I don't want to do this for my whole career. So um, made a move, uh, started my company 11 years ago with my business partner, who's also a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. And the rest is history, but we've been we've been at it for over a decade now. 
Yeah. Very cool. Well, congrats. And I was going to go down this path of like very technical interview questions, but you brought something up that I want to, I want to hit on for a second. Cause you, cause I had a very similar experience where you're looking at these guys and saying, man, I don't want to be that. Right. And so what, and that's a huge pivot point. Right. And, 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 and because of that, we both ended up in real estate. So it must be something about real estate that, that lets us get here. But tell me about that uh, like a little bit more. So, so you didn't want to be them, but why? To set the stage, at this point in my career, I was an assistant district attorney general here at Nashville, Davidson County. So I was on the vehicular trial team, not making a ton of money, but I was trying cases. I was very happy. Um, Along came my firstborn. I realized that I needed to to make more money and I didn't want to be a a DA my whole career. So I started having coffee with... um, you know, partners at these law firms to try to transition laterally um, into, into one of those gigs. And I had probably a hundred of these coffees. And, and the fact pattern was always the same. These guys were 55 to 65. They didn't really like their lives. They didn't like their careers. Um, the value that they were creating for their enterprise was directly correlated to how much time they were spending on something, not necessarily how good of a job they were doing. And I thought it was just a crazy way to live. And they had this golden handcuffs problem where they were making just enough money to live the lifestyle that was expected of them as a partner, but they never had enough money to to have a little bit more freedom in their lives. And um, it just really sparked my entrepreneurial spirit of, you know, I don't want to be on that treadmill to nowhere. And I, and I think I can, you know, real estate is an inefficient market, right? So I thought if I could work really hard, be a little bit better um, than the next guy, I could carve out a good niche for myself. Yeah, that's awesome. And and I wanted you to share that. I appreciate you doing that because just so similar to my, my own personal experience, different industries, I was a management consultant, but but very similar. I mean, had had my first kid and and started saying, yeah, you know, do I want to be, do I want to do this? You know, am I going to be able to be around and and be able to, you know, start asking those hard questions and, and then made me really start to look at the people that, yeah, were 10, 15 years ahead of me and, 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 and ask, you know, are they happy? And, and is that what I want to do? And, and the answer to both were no. So, so yeah, same thing. That's what made me pivot and, and come into real estate and be able to get that freedom uh, to be able to be kind of the, you know, the dad you want to be and live the life you want to be. So, so awesome. Now very, very much resonate with that story. So very cool. Good job taking the initiative and <laughs> making it happen, man. Cause that's hard, you know, I kind of talk about this uh, with other entrepreneurs. It's, it's the hero's adventure, right? It's the cycle of you, you choose to step off the ledge and take that risk and and go there. And it's really scary in our world there's a bit of a hero complex where people don't want to talk about being vulnerable and being scared when they take that initial step. But looking back on it, and I tell people this all the time, knowing what I know now, I just was oblivious to the risk. Like I didn't really appreciate <laughs> yeah. everything I was doing. So I don't yeah. know. I don't think I would, I could make that same decision today, but at the time it just seemed to make all the sense in the world to me, but yeah, it's not easy to, to make that initial uh, yeah. plunge. But there, there's something to that ignorance, right? Like you have to have that ignorance to be willing to do it. Because like I've heard so many entrepreneurs say that. It's like, you know, if I, I don't know if I could do it again, but I didn't know any better, right? Yeah. Kind, of, kind of that thing. And I, th- I think you have to have that to be able to take that leap. Because if you're, if you're aware of all the bad stuff that could happen, then, uh, then you may not. But you know, that, that's awesome, man. Appreciate you sharing that story with us. And, 
Tell us a little bit more about Excelsior Capital. What are you guys working on? As background, I initially started a company called Preamp Capital. That was the initial venture. And, um, <laughs> you know, through the course of five or I guess it would be seven or eight years, we raised a series of funds. So kind of traditional blind pool co-mingled fund vehicles. And we, we pivoted away from that um, for a whole host of reasons. But I made a lot of mistakes during those first few years. And we were able to, to, to recapitalize that portfolio with an institutional investor. And it was great. But Excelsior is kind of the iteration of my business where I learned from all those mistakes that I'd made, mm-hmm. tried to take things kind of to the next level of execution. And I've been doing it for about two years now. It's a pure play syndication platform, just deal by deal capital raising. And um, so far, it's, it's, it's gone really well. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about where we are today. Right. And, and what kind of, what assets are you focused on? What, what type right. of deals are you guys doing? Yeah. So we're, I know you have a lot of multifamily folks on here. We're a commercial. So historically suburban office, we, to give some perspective, we have about a two and a half million square foot portfolio. It's probably 400 million gross asset value. And we're in 13 markets in the Southeast, the Midwest. And I'd say the the vast majority of it is suburban office. We do also have single story flex, some medical um, some industrial. So we were pretty broad across the commercial spectrum, but we don't do any multi or any residential or anything like that. The w- reason we got into it was the apartment space was very crowded, even 11 years ago when I got into this business and raising capital the wrong way taught me a lot and made me realize that we could simplify our pitch and simplify our service to our investors. And what we do is we give them access to, to real assets. We solve for a double-digit cash-on-cash yield, which is just hard to do in residential or multifamily today. And then we give people the benefits that come from direct real estate ownership on a tax basis. And so initially, we got into office because it was one of the few asset classes that we could solve for that you know yield component. It's becoming harder and harder to do that these days, um, just with how much liquidity is in the system. But once we started doing commercial, we just stuck to our knitting and, and that's where we've stayed. How have you seen your portfolio impacted over the past year? Yeah, COVID's been a challenge, obviously. I think we all kind of read the newspapers and hear the headlines and it's a spectrum, right? So hotels and retail is going to be on one end of it. Multifamily and office is probably somewhere in the middle, depending on location. And then, you know, industrial and then self-storage and all these things are really isolated and insulated from it. It's been fascinating, right? So <laughs> turning the clock back about a year ago, and all I would want to talk about was that office was dead. That, you know, nobody's going to go back to the office, everyone's going to work from home, et cetera. And, you know, I'm getting calls from my investors saying, sell everything. Let's, let's you know, <laughs> thankfully it's an illiquid asset. You can't do that. But if you looked at the REIT market as a proxy, office REITs were down about 40 to 50%. The market punished them pretty, pretty good. Here we are roughly 12 months later, and the conversation is now, man, you know, my workforce is having trouble being productive. Um, Creativity is down. Depression is up. Feelings of isolation are up. Ability to collaborate and come up with dynamic new ideas, especially on the sales, marketing, or development side is a real problem for employers today. So the way we think about it, 4% of the workforce worked remotely uh, pre-COVID. 
clearly that's going to be a bigger number in a post-COVID space uh, world. That being said, this this trend line that we saw towards massive densification, you know, pre-COVID, like in a WeWork where it was down to 75 square feet per user, the pendulum is going to swing the other way where, you know, people are going to want to return to a traditional office layout, which is about 350 square foot per user, because they're going to need a place where they can focus, concentrate, get work done, especially if they don't have a good home setup. If they're a younger renter or they have a family, that's a real challenge for a lot of people. And then you'll see, I think, office be used as a place for collaboration, group um, work and exercises and activities to have that creative kind of dynamic spark come back. So I'm biased, but I do think that Office is going to be maintaining a big part of our professional lives, but I think the way we use it will change. I don't think everyone's going to be in the office five days a week anymore, but mm-hmm. I don't think work from home is feasible over the long term. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you just from my own personal experience of, of this idea of like more of like a flex type schedule where you're, you're where you're at home when you can be, but but you're in an office or somewhere when you need to collaborate. Right. And, and having more flexibility in that schedule. So I definitely see that. And, and hasn't it actually increased the amount of, I don't know, well, I guess you call it square foot per person is how you measure with the social distancing guidelines and things that are going on? Yeah, density. That's right. So the way we use office and those numbers that I threw out there are pretty accurate. I, you know, density is going to be an issue that we see. And, and I think when, when people see the headlines about some of these tech companies, distributing their workforce, it's not as if they're going to Austin or Utah or Florida or Tennessee and not going to the office. They're just leaving San Francisco. They're leaving New York. And so it'll be a distributed workforce with maybe a, a hub and spoke model where they have multiple secondary offices and maybe the central HQ will just downsize and stay in San Francisco. Um, but it won't be, Hey, you can just work from home because it's really hard for managers to keep track of productivity um, without violating pretty much all of your personal privacy rights. And I don't think anybody wants that kind of job uh, dynamic set up. So yeah, I mean, the more and more we see it play out, there are certainly some groups, if you're a software engineer or a technologist, maybe you can work from home you know, permanently. But if you have any kind of job functionality where you need to have some team mentality, you're going to have to come to the office for, for, you know, periods of time. Gotcha. And have, have you seen, I know office leases can be a little longer, so maybe you haven't seen as much. Have you seen your tenant mix shift over the last year? It's really hard, right? And this isn't just a cop-out, but to your point, my weighted average lease term is north of five years across mm-hmm. two and a half million square feet. Mm-hmm. And if, if the tenant is in good standing mm-hmm. and paying rent, and they haven't had any COVID related issues, you know, it's hard to know how it's going to play out because some of those leases don't roll for five, seven, or 10 years. What we have seen is new leasing has obviously been very slow. Lease renewals have been slow. They're starting to pick back up, especially in our Southern markets, which are much more open than the Midwest. But it's just hard to know what the, the long-term effects are going to be. And then we all suffer from recency bias, right? We, on some level, we all think, how we lived the last six months is how we're going to live the next six years. And it's just never sure. the case. It's never the case. Sure. So it's really hard to know what the long-term trajectory of office will be, but we've been able to make distributions. We're at 95% occupancy. 
rent payment and collections have been good, but to ask me to prognosticate about six years out. Yeah. I'm not sure. Sure. No, I appreciate you sharing some of those metrics too, because um, it's important to understand. So it sounds like really you, you haven't seen much of an impact, um, which is kind of, as you said, counter to, to a lot of what you read in the headlines. Right. Yeah. So I think it's hard when, you know, people think of the office sector and then they only talk about midtown Manhattan. Sure. You know, it's just not representative of the entire industry. And I can tell you anecdotally, I've been back on the road traveling and even in pretty locked down markets, people are in the office. Um, Maybe not a hundred percent, maybe they're on a rotation, but the managers and the employers and the users that we've talked to, it, it was very important starting probably post labor day of last year to get people to go back into the office on, on some level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so no, knowing what you've observed over the past year um, and has, has your strategy changed going forward? Are the things that you guys are, are doing differently now or, or plan to do differently? Yeah. I mean, right now underwriting a suburban office deal is a challenge because if there's any lease up, any lease renewal assumptions you have to make. Most people are, are pressing pause and saying, give me a year. You know, if last year a tenant was considering a five-year renewal, they're probably just going to do a two-year carpet and paint light tenant improvement allowance type of deal because they're in wait and see mode. And so those type of deals are very difficult to underwrite for us and, and we're not going after them. That being said, the 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 single story flex product is just such demand right now that that's where we've been focused most of our efforts. We have three deals right now, as well as the medical office um, space. So we continue to find opportunities, but right now, just a traditional office, suburban office is, is a challenge for us. Gotcha. Just so that, so we all understand when you say uh, that one story flex, you know, what does that mean? What, what type of tenants are going in there? Like paint a picture for us. Yeah. So the best way I can say it is when you're two or three miles outside of your airport, or if you do a park and fly or some setup like that, and you see the product type that's around those areas, that's what I'm talking about. So maybe office or retail frontage, that's kind of single bay, no common area. And then there's an industrial or distribution usage usage in the back um, where you know they have kind of the high bays and they can go in and out. That's the product type that I'm talking about. Gotcha. Okay. Very interesting. How does a traditional commercial deal, what, what does it look like for, for an investor? I mean, you said you're putting together syndications, but tell, tell us how the deals are, are structured. Yeah. So we, we put them into an LLC. It's a single purpose vehicle entity. So the only thing in that LLC is that one asset, no cross collateralization on debt or equity with other deals. We you know, have a PPM standard operating agreement. And then everyone who invests is a, is a common equity investor in the deal. So everyone is pair pursue. Um, there's no pref. We have, you know, senior secured debt, typically CMBS or LifeCo. And then everyone gets economic returns based on the, the, you know, their pro rata percentage of equity that they put in the deal. Gotcha. So everybody's equal in the deal and you're just, and you're just distributing cash flow. Yep. Um, pair pursue, as you said. Gotcha. So everybody just, everybody gets their share based on their ownership. Yeah. And we probably have uh, 25 to 50 entities in every, um, every deal. It, it kind of depends. Um, but that's the 80, 20 rule is, is pretty applicable for us. Um, so we'll have folks who are 
high net worth individuals that put in, you know, $50,000. And then we'll have some family offices that have a, a minimum of a million, but it all kind of shakes out. And we try to keep it very clean and transparent. We've learned our lessons to get yeah. too cute with these things. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep it simple, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and you mentioned a little bit, but, but who are, who are the folks that are investing in these deals? We only work with taxable investors. So no institutional LPs, it's not our cup of tea. We're not, we're not structured for them. There's not a fit for us. It's across the spectrum of high net worth individuals, family offices, independent RIAs have become a big part of our investor base recently as they look to you know create yield for their clients, but it's all taxable investors. Is it folks that are only accredited? Is it, are you taking sophisticated folks? All yeah, accredited? Only accredited investors. Yeah. Gotcha. So you have, you have an insight in, into a different, uh, different market uh, th- than I do. And so you know, I'm curious, what else should we know about, about what you guys are working on with commercial real estate or how you're structuring deals? What are we missing out on? Um, I mean, the biggest thing for us and, and the driver for where we go and the, and the product type we get is a direct response to the feedback we get from our investor base, which is give me double digit yield. I want that cash on cash. Hopefully I want that net cash on cash. I want it annualized and I want it sent monthly. So, you know, we've, we've gone down in deal size and we've, we've gone to different markets where we could still achieve that on a risk adjusted basis. But that's the biggest thing right now. There's such a thirst for that yield. They can't get it anywhere else. And multifamily, I think still provides a lot of great IRR and potential, you know, upside, but for us, we're, we're really replacing a fixed income portfolio for most of our investors. Oh, very interesting. So you're, you're taking the, the place of that bond portfolio now that you can't get anything out of them, right? Correct. I mean, if, if you look at what treasuries are doing, um, they've gone up you know, over the last couple of days, but you're still talking about one and a half points maybe. Yeah. And then if you look at the junk bond market, even though they're really risky assets, they're, they're in that four sub 4% range. And so for us to achieve that double digit cash on cash yield, that's kind of our mission statement. And then we're kind of delivering that service to our investor base. Mm-hmm. How do you guys continue to grow over the next couple of years? I mean, what do you see happening? Yeah, I, mean, I think we're in a long-term low interest rate environment, mm-hmm. despite yields going up here a little bit. I can't see anything happening there sub, uh, substantially. And unfortunately, with all this liquidity in the market, I think cap rates are going to continue to be suppressed. Real estate's one of the few places where, you know, you can put money to work that doesn't seem like it's an inflated asset class right now. So I think it's going to continue to be competitive. We're going to continue to work in in secondary uh, markets, Southeast Midwest, maybe the interior West and um, try to stick to that $10 million price point. We've had a lot of success there and we've carved out a nice little niche. So Growing the business just deal by deal. Our goal is to do you know five or six acquisitions this year. Knock on wood, we have three that are set to close here in the next 30, 45 days. And so we'll continue to just kind of chug along where, where we've been you know, the last year or two. No, that's awesome. And what do you got? What are you seeing um, in the markets that you're in? I mean, what do, what do cap rates look like on the commercial side? Yeah, I mean, people don't believe me when I say this, but for for suburban office that's well located, tenants are are high quality and they haven't had any COVID issues. Cap rates have gone down since COVID. There's just really not a lot of deal flow. And the biggest challenge that we've seen is sellers 
have stopped transacting because they don't have a very productive place to put the money back to work. So you've seen a little bit of slowdown there, but generally speaking for our deals, we're looking at anywhere from a seven to an eight to a nine cap. Wow. That's just, uh, just so different when you think about from multifamily perspective and, and you have markets that are heading into like, you know, low fours now in some of the more competitive markets. And I guess even when you get to the coast, you're maybe talking threes almost. Yeah. And that, and, and, and when you think about a German pension plan that by law has to invest in negative returning, you know, Deutsche Boons bond market for them, a, a 3% yield probably makes sense, right? And so you're going to continue to see that dynamic play out. For us, we've had to continue to go smaller and smaller on the deal size. And that adage in real estate of it takes the same amount of brain damage to do a $10 million deal as it does to do a $100 million deal is totally right. But there's a price differential there. And so we've just kind of said, we'll put up with doing some of these smaller deals because the returns are outsized. And um, <laughs> I think we're going to continue to have to rotate through markets and keep yeah. going in that kind of sub $10 million range. Yeah. And you know, what's really funny is I mean, we're doing the exact same thing on the multifamily side. We're doing smaller deals. We're doing, we're in more tertiary markets um, for the exact reasons that you just described. So, yeah. I mean, it really is a parallel strategy. So that's a, uh, it's a good proof point to, to me that uh, somebody that's really smart and another asset is, is following the same <laughs> I, strategy. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all seeing the same thing. And, and also from the investor side, listen, if you want exposure to big gateway market office deals, you can get it through a fund of funds or a REIT vehicle or something else. Mm -hmm. But we, what we do is just is more niche and more strategic. And, um, you know, it just has a different place in your portfolio and, and it's continued to work. And I think we're going to stay focused there. Definitely. Well, thanks, Brian. I, you've been, uh, it's been awesome having you on because I've learned a ton about office that I didn't know. And uh, so I appreciate you coming and sharing all that with our listeners. Before Absolutely. I let you go though, We've got a section that we like to do called Keys to Success. And I, I want to get your thoughts on a few questions. First one is, what is the, the one question, if you only had one, that every investor should ask their deal sponsor? Yeah, and this is a great question. And th this is something I talk about with other folks as well. I think the biggest mistake investors make when they're doing diligence on a manager is not focused on the deal itself. I mean... The deal is what the deal is, and you can run diligence, you can do your homework, but on some level, you have to just trust that manager, right? You have to trust they know what they're doing, you have to trust the assumptions they're making, and you can make your decision on whether that deal works. But the question they should be asking is, don't talk to me about this deal, talk to me about how you have built your small business infrastructure and what my experience as an investor will be. Interesting. I like because that. Because there are two different risks, right? I mean, the deals have mm -hmm. to work, but in order to be sustainable and to, to scale efficiently, you just need all this infrastructure internally that a lot of sponsors, unfortunately, think of themselves as deal guys and not small business owners. And that will really determine what your experience is like as an investor. Yeah. No, that's very good. I like that question. What are you most proud of in your career? So uh, I made a bunch of mistakes the first go around mostly around not having a, a, a sufficient infrastructure and a small business mindset when I was being a real estate entrepreneur. And it was a challenge. Uh, my reporting was bad. My investor relations was bad. My marketing was, was, was terrible. 
I didn't focus enough on the tax side of things. It was hard. I mean, I had a lot of very difficult conversations with my investors, but I took all of that feedback. Um, I got kicked in the teeth. I was very vulnerable for about a year, went on kind of a mini roadshow. And I took all those lessons and I, you know, I fixed things and then I tried to make them better. And we continue to try to make them better. But the thing I'm really proud of is going through that excruciatingly painful process and not just walking away and going dark. I think it's ultimately made me a much better manager. Yeah, I'm sure it has. I mean, that that's great, right? Being able to to go through and come out on the other side. Awesome. What books should everybody be reading? So the No Rules Rules by Reed Hastings, the Netflix CEO. If you are in any management position or just thinking about how you would ultimately want to build your business, he has a very radical way of thinking about things, almost like Ray Dalio. And, and the book is just is well worth anyone's time to check out, no matter what industry you're in. Awesome. And then lastly, what is your number one key to success? I, I would say the term that you use, the grit, resiliency. Mm-hmm. I mean, in this business, you are going to be challenged every day. And a lot of people are going to say you're crazy. You're going to get a lot of no's. But if you wake up and work every day, you can build something really special. But it's, you know, <laughs> it's a grind. Yeah. Yeah. You got to show up every single day, right? As an entrepreneur and, and as your own boss. Yes. Awesome. Thanks again, Brian. Appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your wisdom with, uh, with the listeners, with myself. It was great talking with you. And how can folks get a hold of you if they want to learn more about what you're doing at Excelsior Capital? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's how we connected. Um, so if you shoot me a message, connect with me, I'd be happy to set up a call. I'm posting on there all the time. And then you can go to the website, excelsiorgp.com, um, and you can enter into kind of the process there if you want to learn more about the investment side and what we do. Awesome. We'll make sure that's all in the show notes so folks can get a hold of you. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Have a good rest of the day, man. It was nice talking with you. All right, Ken. I appreciate it. Bye. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit kentritter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.